3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nation, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land on which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to the elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning, Sawyer. Morning, Madison. How are you doing? <laughs> good. How are you? I am good. I am very excited that we are back on the air. I know. It yeah. has been a little while. It's been total chaos in the world and um, just everywhere, really. So having a little bit of normalcy will be good for the soul, I think. Yeah, it's great. Although it is weird because we are recording this uh, little intro to our show when it is, what, 11 something in the morning? It's 11, 11 a.m. on a it's Sunday. It's 11, 11. Oh, Oh, look at us. It's, I honestly, like, seriously, I love doing breakfast break radio. It is one of my favorite things in the whole world. But mm. what I do not miss is waking up at 5.30 in the morning. What I do miss, though, you're right. You're very right. Um, but what I do miss is coming home and feeling like you've lived a whole life before 10 a.m. Now I wake up at 10 a.m. and I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Another day. <laughs> that, is, that is true. There's, there's like no excuse to feel better than other people. No, none at all. <laughs> none at all. Or more productive. <laughs> like that's completely been stolen away from us. Um, I know. Thanks oh, gosh, virus. But we're going to try <laughs> and not necessarily flood everyone with COVID news because that's everywhere. Um, and we want a little bit of a reprieve from all of that nonsense. And there are positives that have come out of, you know, you can see that the curve's been flattened and things like that. And we will touch on that, no mm. doubt. Um, but we're not going to centre our show around about that because the, the world still goes on and there's still many, many other issues we can yeah. talk about instead. Exactly. So I suppose, you know, firstly, welcome back to, uh, to breakfast. And yes, moving forward, our plan for this, for this show every week is to not be too COVID heavy. Mm. Um, having said that, we've got a few different uh, things on this today that do have a bit of a COVID look, but they don't, they don't center around it. It's not about, you know, here's what's happening in the world of COVID. It's here's mm-hmm. the things that we are doing as a community um, to deal with it, to come together, to try and, you know, keep those senses of normality and joy in the world. Um, so speaking of, we've uh, put together a couple of interviews. Uh, one of the really fun things, I think, about being able to do this show remotely is that we have so much more freedom to have longer interviews. So mm-hmm. we're going for a slightly different format. And um, this week I had two fantastic, wide-ranging conversations with two really, really great people. Um, one of the first ones you'll hear from will be Mark Camilleri from Queerspace. So as you know, we have a sort of monthly-ish um, queer space segment and Mark's going to be talking about how queer space are continuing to deliver all of their really really valuable support programs to the queer community Wonderful. as well as just a bit of a chat about the things that we can be doing to just make ourselves feel content and with ourselves um, mm. in this in this time and why it is that we do need to keep supporting our our, our you know queer community out there absolutely I think um, especially at the yeah. moment given how 
a lot of a lot of queer folk have been sent back to their family homes, which aren't necessarily safe. Exactly. A lot of queer folk are sort of exactly. uh, devoid of, you know, their own the, the communities that they have formulated in public spaces. Like, yeah, it's everyone's feeling a little bit insular and individualistic, and that's For sure. kind of the antithesis of of chosen families. So I think that's exactly. I'm really excited and, yeah. to hear that. Yeah. So Mark and I touch on that a little bit. So it's 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 good. Um, we'll also be having a chat with Ruja Mehdi, who's been on the show a couple of times. She's a community organizer and activist. Um, she works in sort of the legal space as well. And she was one of the founding members of the Northside Coronavirus Outreach Group on Facebook, mm-hmm. which is this kind of cool community group. that's now got about 6,000 members or something, yeah, um, wow. providing help and support to each other. Um, and it starts off in a conversation about that, but it just goes off in this amazing great wide-reaching ridiculous conversation about anything and everything to do with you know systemic issues and addressing this and how we can work together as a community so it it really runs away from covid and goes into a much more interesting space so i'm really excited for you to hear that yeah that's that's wonderful and i think it's important to note you know with these with these little segments that are very much centered around community whilst they are they have this COVID lens it's I imagine there'll be some really really good points about how to keep building communities post this Mm. this period because this period is going to end and we are going to get through it um and it may feel like that's not happening but it absolutely is one day yeah exactly Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. COVID-19 is a sickness that can spread from person to person. It can be dangerous, especially for our elders or people who are already unwell. We can all help stop the spread in our communities. Cover a cough with the inside of your elbow instead of your hand. Wash your hands with soap for at least 20 seconds after you cough or sneeze. Go to the toilet and before you make any food. Keep away from people who are sick, coughing or sneezing. Avoid going to places where there are lots of people. At this time, it is best to stay at home and away from other people as much as we can. If you're feeling unwell, have a fever, cough or sore throat, or worried about someone else, phone your doctor, clinic or medical service right away for advice. It is important to stay connected and strong as a community and keep our mob safe. Visit health.gov.au or your local health service for more information. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Good morning. You're listening to 3CR and my name is Genevieve. I'll be doing the alternative news segment with you. Today, I'll be focusing on dangerous research gaps and biases in the medical world, specifically impacting the health of genetic females, people of colour, and the LGBTQI community. So in light of the bombardment of information about health and well-being in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm sure many of you listening have come across quite a bit of information regarding how different people's bodies are reacting to the virus and different treatments. 
I'm specifically talking about a statistic currently that there are more coronavirus fatalities in men than women. According to reported stats in China, 2.8% of men died from the virus, compared with 1.7% women. And these statistics are mirrored in other places like Italy, Spain, the US, South Korea, etc. Now, this shouldn't seem like huge news. Genetic females have historically outlived and overcome viruses in stronger numbers than men. But the thing that is concerning is there is very little research that has been done to find out why. And many health professionals, and to quote a director professor of the UCL Center for Gender and Global Health, the honest answer is none of us know what's causing the difference. Many want to blame the difference on behavior, where some studies show men are less likely to wash their hands, more likely to smoke, drink, take part in riskier behavior, and less likely to go to the doctor. Although this seems a little disjointed and may be outdated. Emerging research is now showing that women's chromosomes and even hormones may be more of a contributor. To explain this, you need to understand that genetic females' biological makeup consists of two X chromosomes, one from the mothers and one from their fathers, while those of genetic males have only the one X chromosome from their mothers and one Y chromosome. Now, X chromosomes are particularly handy for vital functions like building and maintaining the human brain and the immune system. Having the use of a spare X in case the other is somehow defective is why females are more likely to have stronger immune systems to battle viruses and less susceptible to disorders such as color blindness. There is also research showing that the female hormone estrogen actually binds to immune cells and activates the production of disease-fighting molecules, whilst testosterone appears to suppress the immune system. This is super interesting stuff and stuff that I hadn't heard of ever before. Although I think an important word to dwell on is it is only just emerging research. The fact is the medical world still know very little about bodies that are not Western males. And medical establishments continue to largely overlook the profound uniqueness of the biological makeup of genetic females. And even more so, LGBTQI people, people of color, and indigenous peoples. The current practice of medicine was built using research that was done primarily on male cells, male tissues, male organs, male animals, and male test subjects. The repercussions of this enormous gap in knowledge can already be seen in women having more adverse drug reactions than men due to lack of understanding and testing on how different drugs interact with women's bodies. This is shown in a report between 1997 and 2000, where the US Food and Drug Administration took off the market eight out of 10 prescription drugs because they were causing greater health risks and severe opposing effects in women than in men. A 2018 study then found this was a result of serious male biases in basic, preclinical, and clinical research. This disparity carries on to how medical practitioners interpret and judge pain, 
where women, people of colour and LGBTQI people are less likely to be taken seriously when describing how much pain they are in. These statistics come from Scientific America, where women in the US wait on average 65 minutes in the ER compared to men's 49 minutes. Women are also more likely to be prescribed sedatives, whereas men are more likely to be prescribed painkillers. Associate news editor of The Guardian and author Gabrielle Jackson explains in her book, Pain and Prejudice, that women wait longer for pain medication than men, wait longer to be diagnosed with cancer, are more likely to have their physical symptoms ascribed to mental health issues, are more likely to have their heart disease misdiagnosed or to become disabled after a stroke, and are more likely to suffer illnesses ignored or denied by the medical profession. So where is all the attention going? It still appears to be purely focused on women's reproductive processes. Menstruation, pregnancy, breastfeeding, and menopause. This shows the ability for women to be good wives and mothers is still of the utmost importance for medical research. The ignorance and lack of knowledge is even more drastic when looking at people of colour. The New York Times reported that coronavirus is infecting and killing disproportionately high rates of black people in the US, according to data released by several states and big cities, highlighting the devastating impact of entrenched inequalities in resources, health and access to care. Also stated was the initial indications that doctors are less likely to refer African-Americans for testing when they visit a clinic with symptoms of COVID-19. These reports make more sense when looking at a 2016 survey of 222 white medical students and residents, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It showed that half of them endorsed at least one myth about physiological differences between black people and white people, including African-American people's nerve endings are less sensitive than white people's. It becomes even more sinister when realising that this physiological myth that people of colour were somehow more resistant to pain than white people stems from slavery. It was believed people of colour had quote-unquote thicker skin and therefore were used in more excruciatingly painful medical experiments, validated by this belief that they could essentially take it. And medical students still believed it was a biological fact. Instead of understanding race to better diagnose patients through considering their susceptibility to disease and disability, it's still used as a bias that prevents legitimate treatment. Alarming results are also mirrored in the LGBTQI community, where many avoid medical treatment altogether due to fear of discrimination at medical practices. This may be due to an overall lack of recognition and care of queer people's unique experiences and unique bodies. Just as women's health has been mirrored on male testing and mostly focused on their reproductive processes, sexual minority communities research over the past three decades has mostly tended to focus on HIV and AIDS among men. There is little research done on the LGBTQI community's unique healthcare needs and associated risks. In a report in the International Journal for the Analysis of Health 
It states women who identify as LGBTQI are not only at greater risk of developing breast cancer and gynecological cancers, but are also less likely to seek preventative health care such as breast exams, mammograms, and pap smears. Transgender communities face disproportionately high rates of HIV, substance abuse, and mental illness. The community is also more likely to feel the health effects of physical violence, as well as the difficulty for trans people to access legitimate hormonal treatment. Many may seek self-treatment options that are unregulated and potentially dangerous. Even just acknowledging this information is one way to better diagnose and treat people. Right now, a re-evaluation on our medical practices are needed more than ever. I find it pretty ironic that so much emphasis is being placed on stay home to save lives when our medical practices already prevent so many people from getting adequate and essential health care. How many lives could have been saved with research into how different bodies react to different medication and making apparent embedded biases that minorities face every day? some not even accessing healthcare due to discrimination. The white, male-centred, one-size-fits-all that the medical world is still so intertwined with is due to change. With the excess of information being broadcasted about the pandemic right now, I hope this message won't get lost. That was how we did it Shooting up a hundred Driving without a permit Flight line any minute And we never give a damn Cause we're up in a palace Full of hello heaven Late night 7-11 Screaming in the fucking lot Trying to get each other shot Yeah, remember that's how we did Don't forget my name Things I said In another life 
the incredible Nairi. If you actually go on Nairi's Instagram, you'll find a video she posted recently as part of the art gallery of New South Wales's new series Together in Art. So it's essentially just her singing through the gallery once it was closed to the public, which she described as singing through an empty building full of art ghosts. It's well worth a watch. Um, her Instagram is at N-G-A-I-I-R-E. Uh, so, uh, Mark Camilleri, good morning. Good morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, you are um, speaking to us uh, as a representative of Queerspace. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself to start us off? Um, so, yeah, I'm one of the senior practitioners at Queerspace. So I'm a psychologist. I've been working like with the queer community for, um, gee, I think it's like almost 25 years now, 1998. So uh, was when I started, I had my first queer client, and I'm a queer identified myself, a queer queer person. Um, And, yeah, and I think um, I initially started working with queer youth and then queer people with um, intellectual disabilities, um, then LGBTI populations, again, working with um, young people and their, their families. And then I worked in sexual health, again, working. I ran a queer youth group um, for 14 years. And then I've um, come over to Queerspace at Drummond Seat and have been um, working there for like the last four years. And uh, yeah, that's been really great. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and you are joining us today to have a, a chat sort of, I guess, broadly around the mental health implications of COVID-19 and also, I suppose, some of the things that Queerspace is doing to, to support um, its clients and then the queer community more broadly during this sort of fraught time. Um, why do you think we need to be thinking so much more or, or even more carefully about mental health strategies at the moment? Yeah, I think, um, you know, lots of the strategies and lots of the coping things that I see are coming out and lots of supports are actually made for 
heterosexual and cis populations, and they maybe don't take into account the unique experiences of LGBTI and Q plus populations, that we know that for queer people, for um, LGBTIQ plus populations, we don't have the same access to community that heterosexual and cisnormative people do. So for them, the whole world is default um, heterosexual and cisnormative, whereas for um, gay and lesbian and bi people, um, because of our sexualities, we don't necessarily have the same glues or the same supports or the same rituals that help us make to feel included. And for um, uh, trans and um, gender diverse and non-binary and intersex people, um, again, they don't have the same structures or the same, actually they have more barriers to accessing services and supports than the um, cis-normative populations. So I think for LGBTIQ populations, we have, you know, we always have this minority stress that sort of sits in the back of this white ground, white sort of noise in the background that makes us feel a little bit different. You know, it might not be so overt as to say there's something wrong with us, but it's definitely giving us a message that, you know, that the systems are set up for normal people and therefore we're not sort of a part of that. We also have to realise that we have more stigma and discrimination than um, heterosexual people and cis-identified people. And some of those stigmas and discrimination, again, can help wear down our mental health. So we know that um, particularly for um, trans and gender-diverse, non-binary and for intersex people, that, and then if you're a young person as well who's LGBTIQ, um, it's going to create more barriers to accessing, um, to having better mental health and accessing the supports. And so with this lockdown and with the breakdown of our communities, um, it's going to be harder for us to find, it was already harder for us to find our own little communities and our tribes but uh, now with the, the COVID-19 and the lockdown and the lots of places where we would find our communities are now removed. And so therefore that will cause more isolation and therefore cause poorer mental health outcomes. Mm. I, it makes me, um, you know, I, I suppose um, you, you speak about young people quite a bit and, and I guess it makes me think, about those young people who might be finding their community outside of the home, but are now potentially in lockdown um, amongst family who may not either know they're queer or may not fully ex accept that they're queer. Um, I mean, I know yeah. that that's definitely a, a stereotypical narrative, but is one that does exist. Um, what do you think might be some of the more particular challenges that are that are facing like queer people in particular who are having to be around uh, members of their family or their household who may, who may be placing that added pressure on them. Definitely. So we're going to see, we're already seeing it, a lot, an increase in um, intimate partner violence and increase in family violence. So it comes out in all those ways that we are erased or coerced or um, not allowed to be ourselves. So therefore, if I'm a queer young person, um, and I'm uh, trans-identified, but now I'm at home with my mum and dad and three brothers, um, before I could catch up with my friends and be fabulous, <laughs> whereas now I might not be able to do that because they, uh, you know, there may be some hostility. So I might start policing myself and start to feel that maybe I can't be myself. And we're also seeing it in the pressures um, in intimate partners, with intimate partners, because we're sort of, 
the pressures that we already have on our relationships to normalize them and to um, have them expressed. Um, and so again, we might see partners uh, policing or coercing or people not having the freedom to leave or to have outside spaces away from the relationship mm. that take the pressure off some of those um, conflicts that can happen that might turn, you know, can turn into um, intimate partner violence. Yeah, and, and, and you speak about, uh, you know, taking, being able to go and take, take time to take the pressure off. Uh, before we look into what the things that Queer Space are, are doing specifically to help support people uh, during this time, um, maybe we can think a little bit about uh, different strategies that um, people themselves could take to try and mitigate some of the stress of this, of this um, pandemic, I suppose, because I guess we have the the, the short term impact of it. This this immediate first couple of weeks that we've been experiencing of it, the 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 shock of it. Um, then I guess there's a medium term. You know, we may be in this for a while. What are the things that we can be doing to to normalize and engage and try and settle ourselves so that we can just live our lives as best as possible? And then I guess there's that long term as well, looking forward of, of the recovery of it. Um, I suppose from a from a, from a, a like personal psychological standpoint obviously noting that this is just a radio interview so you're not you're not giving you know specific advice what are some of the things that we could be doing to kind of help manage ourselves as people or as queer yeah. people during this time top tips I um, well, one, <laughs> well one of the good things about lgbti populations and there's lots of them is that we're remarkably creative we survived the postal survey we were able to rally together to find our communities and to um, look after ourselves and I'm seeing a lot of that in the way that we're responding to this uh, to the to the lockdown at the moment to the social isolation to some of those other pressures of, um, of um, intimate partner and family violence you know we're a wonderful rainbow creative lot and um, we'll find our ways around it so some of the things that I'm sort of seeing at the moment is you know um, even though our routines, you know, I think keeping the routine is important. So if your routine was like, you know, catching up with my queer friends, my little queer family to escape my um, hetero and cis family, that um, even though I might not be able to do that physically anymore, I can do that through other avenues. And I'm seeing a lot more use of um, social media. I'm seeing a lot more use of um, even just, you know, having a chance to talk to our queer friends about whatever's going on, um, our incidences of stigma and discrimination. And, um, you know, I'm seeing, you know, we know, you know, a lot more people are using uh, our switchboard service. So the, the, uh, Switchboard and Q Life, which are the sort of the telephone counselling. I'm knowing lots of queer people. You know, they're having these like little meetings over Zoom platforms, or you know, I've seen um, a lot of these Facebook groups. So there's like the um, the queer um, Melbourne. Um, uh, so that's sort of working out sort of really well. Of sort of ways that we can sort of get around that sort of a little bit invisibility and ways of connecting. I know lots of the venues now are doing sort of online streaming of like Trivial Pursuit or online sort of drag shows. There's sort of ways that they can sort of get around the, the isolation and finding sort of new and unique ways to connect. And, you know, we still can, you know, for, for those of us that, you know, um, you know, we're allowed to sort of go out and sort of do, you know, walk and do some sports things or meeting to sort of uh, catch up and take our dogs for a walk. 
Um, I see also, you know, that there's a sort of Netflix at the moment. So I, I know like when we're invisible, we can find, it might not necessarily be our things, but, you know, watching queer films makes us be able to go, oh, there's other queer people and this is the way they live their lives. And I saw that Netflix now has this play mode where you can watch a queer film on Netflix together and then you put a little screen in the corner. So mm. even though you're in your separate houses, you're getting queer content because you're watching the movie and then you can say, oh, this is me or that's me or that's similar to my experience or it's not similar to my experience. Uh, but you also then can do it with other your other queer little ally, or queer people and allies. Mm. Yeah, I... I um... Yeah, the internet's a great thing for this in, in many ways, isn't it? And and I know that you mentioned the, there's a Facebook group about uh, queer people coming together during this time. And, and I, I was having a look at it the other day. And I think it really shows that um, it's leveraging community to also do good. It's it's not just we're not thinking about this just as survival, but it's how can we use, you know, the, the our community as queer people to actually support each other. And, and have something more positive come out of it at the end, I suppose. Um, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited yeah. to see as well where it might go in an activist space and how, how queer activism online might, might shift a bit or, or be, be leveraged better because, um, yeah, I suppose the queer community has always had a big presence in sort of online spaces or subspaces because, as you said, we're not the quote-unquote normal. We have to find spaces in other places and where we're adaptable, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, despite yeah. Having... and we've got um, radio, our radio stations, so like, like you guys and Joy, mm. you know, they're really great mm. ways where you can, instead of, you know, I've, I've had some clients, you know, they, they go, oh, I'm really anxious about COVID-19. Well, they put the news on at 9 o'clock in the morning and turn it o'clock off at nine o'clock at night. And I'm like, if I listened to all that for 12 hours, I would be anxious as well. So turn yeah. it off, you know, put on free CR, put on your joy, you know, get, yeah. get a, you know, do seek out. I think we just need to be a little bit more um, assertive or a little bit more um, uh, purposeful in seeking out our queer communities now mm. um, because we, you know, we can't access them in the same way. We need to access them in new and different ways. You know, mm. I saw also on Facebook, you know, there's this thing called the kindness pan pandemic about, you know, people just posting little bits of kindness that they do. And of course I see lots of um, uh, our rainbow family, our rainbow community posting in there, uh, just their little experiences of, of, you know, resisting some of the doom and gloom that um, the, the, the naysayers are putting about what this virus is going to mean. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, sort of finding kindness and joy and beauty to, to to resist to resist everything. I think that's a that's a really great way of putting it. Um, maybe looking just a bit more specifically at queer space, because obviously queer space provides a whole host of services, many of which are face to face. What are some of the things that um, you've been doing to be able to keep supporting the community uh, remotely? Yeah. So Queer Space, look, we're one of Melbourne's premier um, mental health delivery services for the LGBTI community. So we're being um, sort of, uh, we're um, queer identified practitioners and we do um, individual, group, family work. And so as we're being confronted now with this COVID-19, um, we've been doing um, through our, our Facebook and through our website, um, tips to stay connected during 
So we post them like daily, sometimes, uh, you know, they're coming out late every day, little tips on how you might stay connected, how to manage your mental health, how to be positive, how to maybe also take the focus off yourself. You know, we, you know, sometimes when we're all like, oh, this is all about me and it's all impacting me, sometimes if we flip that around and think about how can, it, how can you know, I make it about someone else. It takes then the focus off and gives us something to do, gives us some sense that we're actually achieving something. So for Queer Space, yeah, we've been really right, right on the ball and um, doing these little tips. You know, we're still operating, so we're still seeing clients. We um, have our little, um, uh, our, our, all our group work now will go online and become sort of community sort of uh, uh, online groups. And, you know, we are also particularly responding to, as I said, the increase in um, intimate partner and family violence to make sure that like those are the most vulnerable people of our community and making sure that they're not getting left out. And that's sort of really a big um you know, as soon as this hit, we were like, okay, who's it going to affect and who's it going to affect the most adversely? And those were the types of things, you know, it's going to be about isolation and breakdown of community. And because of some of those pressures, um, there will be increasing um, intimate partner and family violence. So that's really been our focus. You know, business as usual, but how can we use these new modalities and how can we sort of try to respond to some of the needs of our most vulnerable populations? Mm. And what are the sort of things that you're doing to help address those those increases in in um, family violence and intimate partner violence? Um, so all our intake services are still working. Um, so we're um, and we're um, through our our platforms, so through our Facebook and through our website, we're letting people know that they're experiencing, letting the queer community know that if they're experiencing it, that there's a whole range of uh, ways that we can respond. You know, from personal to family support, and little trick, like little things like how can you make yourself safe in your own home? So maybe not leaving might not be an option, but you know. You can go, you know, go and sit in your car or you might not be able to talk because your partner's there now. Um, so what are some little code ways that you can let us know that it's actually not safe to talk at the moment because your partner's there? So we're sort of trying to think of what's some creative ways that now we can get around some of those, um, some of those, you know, coercion and monitoring and policing that happens in um, intimate partner and family violence. And, yeah, we need to be really creative um, and we need to work, you know, with our clients, you know, they've been, they live in these situations for a lot long, you know, they know them. Um, and so by giving little strategies of ways that we can sort of manage in their situations, because, um, you know, particularly at the moment, um, leaving those situations might not be an option. And even um, for those that can, you know, would leave those situations, you know, they get their ho a whole range of supports as well. And that can be from, you know, flexible support packaging, so financial support, um, emotional support. Sometimes it's just about making, like, how can you be making safety plans? So we do lots and lots of safety plans with clients, um, ways that they can keep themselves safe and, you know, ways to de-escalate. Mm. That sounds, those all sound like really um, useful and, and uh, well-constructed strategies, I suppose, very creative, like you said. Yeah. Um, if people want to access um, these supports, how can they find Queer Space and Drummond Street Services? Um, I think the webs, you know, our website is probably the best place to go. I mean, uh, and also we have a Facebook page. So both mm -hmm. of those, you know, the Queer Space, um, the list of all the services, 
Um, you know, you can also, again, do it all online. So if you're a young person, a, a genderqueer young person, you're in your bedroom and your horrible families are not being nice to you, you know, just jump on your phone and, you know, you can jump on the Queer Space uh, website or go onto the Facebook and say, hey, you know, my, my family's being horrible to me, um, you know, what can I do? And, mm. you know, someone will get back to you. You can start your intake process through there. You know, we're quite responsive. Um, and that's the way a lot of people do come to us, even besides uh, prior to the COVID-19. You know, it just, it's uh, like, how can we ensure the safety that, um, you know, it, is, it takes that first step. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, some people don't know about us, so it's great to be doing things like this. Mm. But, um, yeah, it, it's sort of, you know, and, and, and it's also, you know, this is, might be for your allies. So if your friend is telling you, oh, my family's being horrible to me, or, you know, my partner and I, we've been fighting more and drinking more, um, you know, say, oh, well, you know, that must be really horrible. You know, oh, I heard this thing on the radio about queer space, you know, give them a call. Let's have a look together. Let's jump online now. Let's have mm. a look at their Facebook page. Let's jump on and have a look at their website. I mean, you mm. can still call us. So, you know, we're still open um, on business, you know, and uh, as I said, our intake is still operating. And we work in collaboration. You know, there's this thing called With Respect, which is um, Transgender Victoria, the Switchboard, Thorn Harbour Health and us, you know, we, and, and that's our intimate partner and family violence service. So between, you know, all those organisations are getting in to make a, a community response to maybe some of those pressures that we're seeing in relationships at the moment and particularly as they're escalating because of the lockdown uh, and the stresses and anxiety from um, COVID-19. And just one final question. In terms of accessing these services, uh, is, there, is there a cost to accessing these services? No, they're all free. They're all funded services. Yeah, fortunately, they're funded by the Victorian government. And um, so, yeah, so they, um, they're free services. And we offer like a range of services as well. So like we have like a mentor project where it's just about like catching up with a mentor, just having someone to maybe if you're feeling lots of socialisation to sort of join in with them. We have sort of one for queer people, uh, for trans and gender diverse, and then one um, for, uh, for families. Um, and they're sort of like mentors, sort of, you know, they're families that have been through some type of family violence and, you know, you can just meet with another family mm. and then we have um, a, a Polaris and then place at the table is just for LGBTIQ plus people just to all sort of get together and individually and in group ways to talk about, again, the experiences of the pressures that they might feel in their relationships or in their mm. family environments. You know, we still do the one-on-one, we do case management, we're all doing brokerage, um, you know, we've all got those, you know, because, um, you know, these pressures are individual, <laughs> they're all going to come out of us in different ways. Mm. And so that's why we need lots and lots of different ways to respond. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's really, really heartening to know that your services are still continuing, that you're adapting to this new context and still continuing to support um, the queer community, which, you know, obviously, um, as you said, need extra support at this time. Um, Mark Camilleri, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I really, really appreciate it. <laughs> and, and for managing the terrible internet connection that uh, we seem to be having at the moment. Um, have a lovely day. Have a life now. You too. Thank you very much. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. 
never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. You're listening to 3CR. We really are in unprecedented times and 3CR, as your local community broadcaster, is trying to do our part to minimise the spread of the coronavirus throughout the community. At the front of our minds is protecting the most marginalised and vulnerable, but we are still here. And we'll continue broadcasting 24 hours a day with radical alternative content throughout this period, but things will sound a bit different. Some programmers will present their shows on the phone and we'll be finding creative ways to bring you our regular programming. So stay tuned, stay safe and be kind to each other. I'm talking to Ruja Mehdi, who is a relatively long-time friend of the show, uh, who's on to speak a little bit about some of the work that she's doing at the moment um, around COVID, the pandemic, and things more broadly. Good morning, Ruja. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. Before we start, why don't you just give us a little rundown um, on who you are? Yeah, so... I guess um, let's start from the beginning. I'm a former refugee. I'm Kurdish from Iraq, um, which I think kind of creates the basis for all the work that I do. Um, I'm a human rights campaigner and my main focus is on economic and racial justice. And I currently work in the legal advocacy space in an organization called Justice Connect. And I'm the chair of the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. Um, but behind the scenes and something that I've been doing for a long time is community organizing and building resources and capacity building in the various communities that I'm a part of and connected to and in allyship with. Mm. And on that note, as part of that, you are a, I suppose, founding member of the Northside Melbourne Coronavirus Outreach Group, which is a Facebook group that took off a few weeks ago. Um, can you explain? you know, what this, what this group is? Mm -hmm. Um, So the group sort of popped off and I think that it's emblematic of a lot of people's feeling or need to be connected in the, you know, in the vacuum or like the, um, the uh, dysfunction of like, you know, the outbreak of the pandemic, you know, people, people kind of are terrified. These are unprecedented times. If you haven't kind of, if you haven't dealt with incarceration or war or those kind of like crisis points in human history, personally, this can seem like completely way out of field. And so I think it touched on a nerve for a lot of people because it gave people hope and connectedness and community, especially in a time where they couldn't physically gather. Um, and so a lot of the people who are running the group, we've got um, administrators who are all um, campaigners, organizers, community, um, uh, community activists, um, and people who are experienced in online spaces and moderating online spaces, which is a task in itself. And then we also have members of the group doing two week shifts, moderating the group um, because we've 
we're kind of running a lot of initiatives out of the group, trying to make sure that we're funneling people's energy and things that are productive and supportive. And we also recognize that a lot of the members in the group are relatively privileged, uh, relatively um, healthy, able-bodied. They often will have, um, you know, some sense of financial stability. And so keeping those people grounded and thinking about the community around them um, mm. is really, really at the top of our priority. And what, I suppose, what's the purpose of this group? What, 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 what is it aiming to do? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, we want to activate our community and provide assistance to people ex- made vulnerable by the pandemic, but also the kind of the destruction of our social safety net, which already was leaving a lot of people um, uh, isolated and slipping through the gaps. Um, there aren't many platforms that up, uplift the needs of people with disability, people with chronic illness, um, people experiencing social isolation. Um, and in turn, there are many people in the community who want to provide help, who want to stay connected. So we've created a self-regulated space that connects people together for the purpose of providing mutual aid. Um, I think one of our greatest challenges, though, is that people who are experiencing multiple um, like oppressions or barriers in their life will find it very difficult to reach out for help. Um, they either for safety reasons, security reasons, like if someone is on a, on a temporary visa or a bridging visa, they may feel worried that the, um, the due to surveillance of, you know, their behaviors that this could be, this could lead them to, um, more harm or to undermine their, um, um, you know, their process, their visa application process, their application for, um, uh, for support in this country. And so we, we're kind of very cognizant of that, although it's a self-regulatory space, we are trying to get people to think about the, everyone in their neighborhoods as well. And that the online space is not the only thing or the not the only connector that it's a um, it can be used or a conduit for sharing resources and um, capacity building for people that it would have never thought of community organizing or what the concept of mutual aid is and so mm-hmm. it's about just as much as connecting people who are asking for help and offering for help uh, offering help as much as it is um, teaching them how to think about everyone in their neighborhood, um, whether they're housed or sleeping rough, um, if, uh, whether they're online or offline, that those are everyone that they're connected to and that they can reach out in um, innovative and, you know, uh, and use tools that have kind of been around for quite a while as well. Mm, so it's, it sounds like what part of the purpose of this or the result of this group is that it's, it's actually mobilizing people who potentially previously haven't even thought about engaging more broadly with their community or with community organizing. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think like mobilizing um, these people is really important, um, especially when I think now we're like in the third or fourth week of um, a lockdown and people are feeling a bit antsy. um, Mm. And if they're not facing various like compounding issues due to the lockdown whether it's like family violence or homelessness or etc if they're in a relatively stable place they are kind of relatively idle so it's about activating them and getting them to think beyond um, themselves especially when the state has withdrawn so many of 
those safety nets that we, you know, that so many people had fought so hard for. Mm. Um, yeah. And so I think mobilizing people is really important, but the, the issue is though, is that these are over 6,000 people and their only common commonality that we can see is that they live within a specific geographic area. And Mm. so the challenge is, is like, how do you build a common purpose or a common idea with people that you can't um, connect with um, face to face Mm. and who, who may come from different types of backgrounds, lived experiences and perspectives? How do you kind of find a sense of commonality, a common ethos and, um, and political perspective and get them to act? And so I think that's another challenge in mobilizing these groups. Mm. And have you found anything that seems to be working in that respect? Um, I think we are, uh, we have like a, a set of guidelines that we're trying to maintain in terms of moderating the space, um, which has helped us um, prevent that kind of, um, uh, you know, everyone kind of like acting in the space of emotion and retaliation or sort of um, always kind of trying to get people to act from a place of generosity and care and consideration for each other. Um, And so we've got got like some guidelines and I think that equipping people with resources that are accessible um, that are on the platform. So people don't have to kind of move away from the platform that, um, that use, you know, uh, easily understood language. And also people are modeling behavior and talking about you know that kind of behavior of reaching out to their neighbors doing letter drops um delivering um groceries um uh, organizing within themselves setting up a little whatsapp group within a specific area and making sure that they're sharing those um responsibilities around within a you know like a a small neighborhood group and things like that and so i think part of um, managing the space is kind of really uplifting those really positive stories um, Mm. especially when people are kind of being bombarded with constant doom and gloom in the media and people's mental health are kind of wearing down as well yeah for sure and and you talk about uplifting those those stories um I'm going to put you on the spot slightly here and uh, Mm. say are there any particular stories that have that have really jumped out for you Mm-hmm. Um, so we have helped um, uh, communities, um, uh, people who are on bridging visas. This one woman had met this um, uh, man uh, who has a young family. Um, they met in a pharmacy. He couldn't afford the medication that he was um, uh, trying to buy. And um, so she bought it for him. They started this friendship. She reached out to the group asking for some support for his bills. Um, people came out in the droves to, um, you know, support him to pay for those bills and support his young family. And then now we have a regular small group supporting that family because a lot of people who are seeking asylum in this country can't access um uh, actual financial aid and that that often compromises their application for asylum and so how do you support people especially if they have school-aged children um, dealing with the shifts in how our society works where kids have to learn on a computer from home um, all those sorts of kind of like huge shifts when you don't have the kind of material capacity to adjust mm. to that life um, so that's been um, one really great story another one is that uh, we've been uh, through the national 
um, homeless collective. We've started a, um, a fund where people who are waged can give a certain amount over um, eight weeks. And then that money is sent to people facing um, homelessness or don't have secure housing and, um, and people who are sleeping rough. And so just kind of getting and giving capacity to those um, people and building that solidarity as well. Um, and then, you know, there's just like different cases of a single mom needing, you know, groceries for a fortnight, really having a tough time, having just lost her job in the service industry and, you know, uh, people kind of like staying connected, building that solidarity and um, making sure that those people don't slip through the cracks as well. So there's lots of examples, but I think mm -hmm. that the greatest thing is the examples of people actually doing letter drops and reaching out to people and um, it, because there's so many isolated people who also don't have access to digital spaces. And so the, the message that we've been trying to repeat is reach out, you know, send a letter, talk to someone that you pass on the street, help each other out. That's kind of like mm -hmm. always looking outwards as well. Um, but then also localizing it, right? Because we're thinking of the pandemic as this kind of global crisis um, in the midst of like ecological collapse. And it's like, it kind of, it, it's it's not very good for you know a general human person's mental health to deal with these kind of like compounding existential crises um mm. and so to ground yourself i think it's really important to think about that interpersonal the the kind of human to human um interaction those are the things that help so many communities weather the storm and you can see that throughout history as well yeah. That, that, you know, where you can find moments of joy, where you can find moments of connection, where you approach each other with generosity um, and also a sense of vulnerability and you are open to that, um, mm. then, you know, you, it means that communities can really survive. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it kind of makes me think um, at, the, at the beginning of all of this, about sort of three weeks ago, I felt like when I was walking around, people were saying hi to each other more. They were, they were being yeah. more open. They were being much more, it was almost like the crisis made everyone want to reach out to their, to, to the, to their sort of geographical community, I suppose. Um, mm -hmm. But now I find that when I walk down the street or go, you know, go for a run or whatever, people, you know, see you coming, you step to the side to do your one and a half meters distance and no one makes eye contact anymore. It, or maybe perhaps that's me, but it seems to be people are starting to close in. And, it feels like activities such as this, you know, spaces such as this, it seems to be a really great way to try and um, mitigate that. There, there seems to be a closing in and we need to be do, do, a, do, a, do a reaching yeah, I think out. That, I, I think the closing in is the fear yeah, and exactly. the compounding um, effects on our mental health, but also that the state is taking a very punitive approach mm -hmm. to this problem so it's not a call to come together and support each other and make sure that everyone has the means to respond to the crisis but it is about fines and imprisonment and, and over policing and targeting you know communities that have already faced um high rates of um imprisonment and over policing and so 
I think that's what we're feeling. So the pandemic in itself is like quite destabilizing, but also now you've got the state kind of breathing down your neck. And if you already are like a First Nations person, if you're a person of color, if you're poor, if you're sleeping rough, you've already faced that. And so it compounds that already. But a lot of people are potentially feeling that confinement and that surveillance for a first time as well. And so I feel like this is, this is communities responding to that. And I wish that we had taken a more kind of uh, mutually supportive, constructive Mm. approach where let's get through this. But I don't know, I feel like it's really exposing the harms of that individualistic neoliberal agenda that we've been sort of force fed for the last 20 years. And now it's rearing its head in a time of crisis when so many, yeah, so many kind of notions of community and connectedness have been destroyed and trust in institutions have also been destroyed. So it's really interesting. And I actually see it in the group as well. People are getting a little bit more uh, aggressive towards each other um, or wanting to police each other a bit more kind of. And so that sense of that lack of control is also making people more forcefully controlling towards each other. Um, so yeah, it's like a very interesting phenomenon just kind of it, just considering what it's going to look like in three months time. It's a little bit worrying, but I think that's why it's really important to kind of center that mutuality, that connectedness, the humanness, um, and that kind of sense of justice as the central notion, but it's very difficult because you're in an online space and, um, you generally don't know who these people are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as you said, difficult when, when that message isn't, isn't coming from, from the leaders, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, on, and so I guess on that point, you know, you, you talk about creating this space for mutual aid and providing, you know, trying to provide support for people. And, and much of that support seems to be based almost in, in the luck of whether a person manages to reach out to someone or not. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, what are your thoughts on the fact that, that there are you know, this is a time of such crisis and government structures still, you know, they're, they're, they're doing some stuff, you know, the, the JobKeeper payment has come out and, and a variety of different um, announcements have been made by governments at a variety of different levels to try and mitigate this crisis, but it's still not reaching the most vulnerable in our society. What are your thoughts on the fact that still, in order to support the most vulnerable in our society, it falls to us as members of our communities? to do that as opposed to the government? Yeah, I think there is like a bit of a tension there because we want we want to trust in our public institutions. We want them to be representative and accountable to us. And we want the social safety net that so many people have fought so hard for mm-hmm. to be present and to be robust and strong and effective. But we've also... Um, there was an interview um, recently about the experiences of temporary migrants. So about 20 years ago, we shifted our entire migration system from a permanent migration um, system to uh, one that is predicated on temporary migrants, but also undocumented migrants. And so they're propping up three of our top industries, hospitality, agriculture and education. And, um, and so it's sort of kind of feeding this unfettered growth by um, really cheap labor where people who work in this country don't have equal rights, don't have um, access to healthcare, don't have access to unions and labor rights. Um, and so it's kind of like a very kind of toxic environment. And so in the 1991 recession, 
at that period, if you were a migrant, you could access welfare within six months of being in the country and having that kind of visa status. Now, because of all of the kind of legislative changes, someone on a, um, who's a migrant has to wait four years before accessing that safety net. And so it's entrenching an entire class of people into poverty, not to mention the kind of compounding effects to people who are undocumented and who are pretty much an indentured labor and who are too scared to reach out. And then when you think, consider people who are on bridging visas or applying for asylum, who consider the kind of like strange tensions where they, they have, don't have working rights, but they also don't have a social safety net that they can access, no kind of welfare provisions. I think it was last year, the SSRS, which gave people basic welfare and also access to trauma counseling and other healthcare services were completely cut um, and, um, and removed, I think, during either last year or the year before's um, federal budget. You've got an entire, um, entire underclass of people um, that can't fend for themselves and not to mention um, uh, First Nations communities who are currently asking for critical funding to be released and um, establishing elders, protected areas um, to make sure that you know, the, the people who are most at risk of um, uh, um, having the virus and dealing with the kind of health implications and complications can actually um, have the resources to, uh, to, whether it's healthcare or the resources and the safe housing and the security and stability to fend for themselves. So mm-hmm. you've got this kind of destruction of the entire like reason why we have government, which is to provide for and to create some set of some sense of equity in the community. So I find I'm sort of in this, I constantly face this tension where sure that we, you know, a self initiated community based response is great and that we don't need the state necessarily to look after us. But we also are a very um, wealthy country and that we spend a lot of money um, bailing out corporations who ultimately don't pay tax and who are oftentimes protected and weathered through these storms. There is this kind of tension, which is like, sure, our communities do rise up and look after each other. And it's part of some of the most like pivotal moments in our history. But we also do not want to let the government loose or like, cut cut loose their responsibility to us um, and that they are accountable to us and that we are the community and they um, are answerable to us. And so there's a bit of a tension where I think that in these efforts to um, build solidarity and build networks of mutual aid, we also want to think about what are the underlying systemic issues that are causing this inequity? And mm-hmm. is there, is there other advocacy efforts and campaigns that we can um, align with our networks of mutual aid. Like, what are what are the kind of systemic issues that we can actually be answering to coincide or to work alongside our networks of mutual aid? And you kind of see you see it in so many instances of like civil rights movements where you can combine efforts of mutual aid with a civil rights focus um, and changing, you know, uh, the legal frameworks and the public provisions and. Um, and government uh, mentality and approaches to communities and that can work really well together and it's actually a really great combination of like organizing and campaigning but you but it's quite difficult to do especially when the most affected communities are on the front line 
they don't have the capacity or the bandwidth to do it um, and they don't have the resources either so it's that kind of balancing act we need to kind of think holistically yeah. and systemically for sure um if you're just joining us uh we are speaking with Ruja Mehdi a long-time community organizer activist um and we and a founding member of the Northside Melbourne Coronavirus Outreach Group. Um, we're having a bit of a conversation right now about the, um, I suppose, activism more broadly, I suppose it's shifting into and, and what we need to be looking at now as a, as a community, as a country um, during this global pandemic. And so I have um, one or two questions. Um, as a community organizer, you were speaking just before about the 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 fact that moments like this can be a, a great time to or, or an opportunity to shift into more of a civil rights focus and 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 um, address systemic change. But obviously, in the context we have right now, is unique to almost anything that that we've come across globally. In that people aren't able to gather. Um, physically with each other. You mentioned this was an issue in and of itself when trying to build a sense of community within the Facebook group. Now that we have to try and gather more online and there are a variety of different benefits and, and, and um, drawbacks to it, um, how has this, this online focus impacted the work of community organizing and activism? I think we take it for granted we take the digital divide for granted quite a bit. Um, and that for me, ultimately, as a campaigner, um, I would, I, you know, I would use digital tools to gather and, and capture um, new people and new interests in a movement or a cause. But ultimately, my goal is to get people offline and meeting each other face to face because a lot of these platforms and digital tools and that kind of interface are quite adversarial. And so I, I, my hope and my kind of perspective was to always try and get people away from those adversarial structures mm. um, and try and get them to connect and find commonality um, and break down a lot of those, you know, um, presumptions or that, you know, uh, you know, when people are acting from a place of hurt and harm. And so they've kind of been quite, um, uh, um, quite casserole in their approach to others, you know, and, and especially when you see in minoritized communities that can tend to happen as well. If you've been treated and isolated and rejected by broader, you know, broader community, you can sort of kind of, project that back out so it was really important for me in organizing minoritized communities to always get offline and so suddenly that sort of purpose changes and um if you're and talking to people over the phone or through a video interface it's a very different experience because you tend to not be able to gauge someone's energy kind of um their presence um you can't express like a uh, physical um, and non-verbal communication, sometimes like silence, there's no space for silence and um, sitting with a thought or an emotion either. And so it does make those things really difficult. Um, and so although we have, you know, we are in um, stage three lockdowns in Victoria, which actually prevents, you know, a, a lot of activities, um, including um, different forms of mutual aid as well that are not institutionalized that aren't supported by established initiatives it's it's but it is kind of proven difficult um, and 
in addition to people relying on these kind of adversarial spaces and digital spaces that are also hotbeds for surveillance for a lot of people, um, it is quite difficult. And I think it's going to give us unprecedented challenges, mm. especially when we're seeing such a huge increase and actually reward for over-policing um, and that, and you know, where we're handing so many powers and so many discretionary powers to a police the police um, and to make these kind of decisions and to um, give out fines and, and people are facing imprisonment. Um, and so it is quite concerning. Um, I remember when the founders of the Black Lives Matter um, movement came here a couple of years ago and they were talking about how they had wished that they had used encrypted platforms to organize their communities and that they were way too open about you know what they were doing and the tactics they were taking and when their communities gathered and that that those were used as tools against them and evidence against them and so a lot of them faced like increasing state violence as a response and mm -hmm. so i do worry about those things um and i do worry about kind of that the the increasing like police and surveillance apparatus and people rewarding that um so yeah i think it will prove to be really challenging especially for minoritized communities like how do we gather when so many tools are um used against us and then in particular australia is a particular specific case because we had a bill pass um uh, at the end, about a year and a half ago, um, it was the anti-encryption bill, which literally forced all digital platforms to create a backdoor that could easily be accessed by the state if they had a warrant. And so a lot of the platforms that we're using to, be, to organize may be used against us just the same and far easier than ever before. Um, yeah, so I think that we really need to be mindful of those things. Well, yeah. For sure, that's that's a lot to be thinking about, especially when we think about just like you said, the increasing police presence just in general, and and the increasing, um, I guess, uh, power they have. Maybe not necessarily explicitly, but just just the feeling of the more power they have of, of them being out on the streets targeting. Um, well, yeah, continuing with their profiling and their targeting, but but also increasingly targeting more and more people. Um, so we've spoken a bit about some of the issues that 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 um, you know activism and um, community organizing and advocacy face uh, being online and and how that could potentially try and be addressed. but um, we also spoke a bit about the systemic issues that that we could try and start addressing um, during this time. Um, as a last question, what do you think are some of the big issues that we need to be thinking about um, outside of obviously the pandemic that we could try think, and start addressing? Yeah, I think the um, hyper-militarized border regime will only increase and expand. Um, and I think we really need to be mindful of that because in human history, when you see any cases of pandemic, states raise, um, raise the walls or the... Um, you know, the, the security around their borders and after the pandemic passes, they never lower them. So there is something, something that's going to happen that will 
that will actually make it more difficult and even more dangerous for the people who are um, over-policed across, you know, our global borders. Mm. Um, I think that's really important. Um, there's a issue about how we frame our economies for perpetual growth and what it means for people with chronic illness and um, disabled people and how we value humanness based on output and um, production. And so mm. I think we need to kind of have a really long, hard look about that and how we prevent people, um, you know, having, uh, having um, stable, secure, uh, interconnected lives um, and that we're preventing people, you know, the perfect example is how people in disability pensions have not seen any increase in their provisions, even though they're at the forefront and at most risk to the pandemic. Um, and I think also we are dealing with ecological collapse. Um, and although, uh, you know, we've got kind of these eco-fascist notions that we've suddenly stopped flying as much and that there's, you know, there's uses of like imagery from Sardinia being um, reported as imagery from Venice and suddenly there's dolphin in, in Venice channels, etc. And so there's kind of these lots of false hoaxes kind of spreading through the internet, um, defining humanness as a virus. I think it's like really important to be really aware of that kind of eco-fascist um, agenda and that mm -hmm. we need to reinforce our sense of humanity and humanness and that ultimately the issue is that perpetual grow growth using finite resources for capitalism. We really need to reflect back onto us. But the thing that I'm really worried about is that currently and just looking at the different policies that we see uh, in this country, we have a very strong underlying neoliberal agenda um, that even though that, you know, for example, um, New Start has been doubled for the next six months, these, these, sorts of, um, uh, these sorts of policy shifts are still underpinned by this kind of neoliberal agenda. And what I'm worried about is that neoliberalism creates the perfect breeding ground for fascism to rise and to frame itself as the alternative or the underdog. Um, and so we need to actually be advocating for strong, representative, accountable um, government that has strong social safety nets that ensures that people can put food on the table and, you know, a, have a roof over their head, um, have access to health care. And those are kind of values that we should really hold on to. But we shouldn't. But we should be kind of hypercritical of that neoliberal agenda and how it can lead to people being further disenfranchised, disconnected. Um, feeling disempowered and leaning or seeking an alternative and fascism being framing itself as the alternative. Um, so that interconnectedness or our networks of mutual aid should be building solidarity across communities that perhaps would never have built um, connections with in the past, that we need to kind of be a little bit more porous and open-minded um, and find commonality because ultimately, you know, the risks are far greater than what we're facing right now. Um, and so, yes, I think that is uh, that kind of economic and uh, ecological justice combination is really, really important in how we frame and approach our interactions with each other. I think that is a fantastic way to round off 
that conversation. Such a profound, such, such a profound ending to that. I suppose mm -hmm. kindness and openness as a way to fight the uh, the forces of fear and evil. Um, Rouge Amedi, thank you so much for taking the time to have such an interesting and in-depth conversation. Um, if people want to join the um, outreach group, how can they find either to help out or to reach out for support? How can they find you? Yeah. Um, so you can have a little search of uh, on Facebook um, and you'll have to agree to the guidelines that we've set out and then you'll come through. Um, we have lots of different types of resources, so don't um, forget to have a bit of a search around the group. There's lots of documents and um, links and lots of initiatives that are being um, established in the group, so jump right in. Yeah, so they just search Northside Melbourne Coronavirus Outreach. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much and um, have a lovely day. Thank you so much. Cheers. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Community radio is your antidote to social isolation. Stay connected and listen to 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming and podcasting online at 3cr.org.au.
That was Maisha, who is a proud Pichanchatjara Torres Strait Islander woman, whose album Nyaringu is being released next month on the 29th of May, which is so exciting. So make sure to keep track of Maisha on her socials. <laughs> this is, I just I just love the, the weird awkwardness of, of trying to do something online. It's just I know. strange silences and did you see that article in abc like maybe i'll reference it later it's it's this article that was published in abc life it was about how to handle the online um awkwardness of online conversations for someone with anxiety and social anxiety it's really good it's just like oh what you do with lags when you're like oh no oh what do i do in this situation right now it's i'll 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 try and um i'll get a couple of quotes and i'll actually read it uh out when i'm not just talking about it. Um, I love it. No, like, <laughs> we can yeah, keep talking about it as well. Yeah, it's it's really really quite hilarious. Um, how those <laughs> like, those conventions kind of bleed into online spaces is quite funny. Yeah, for sure. And I think we're we're gonna I think we're gonna end up with a situation where people are gonna get so used to the online communication. We're gonna leave our houses and we can finally speak to each other. Yeah. And conversations are gonna be like, hi, <laughs> how are you? <laughs> I'm leaving sorry. the space with the lag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, I was just hacked for a second. Oh, hacked my Zoom meeting. Yeah. Um, ha- Hamish Blake will just pop up randomly. <laughs> or something. Yeah. Zoom for one more. <laughs> exactly. Oh, uh, we have some very exciting news. Yes. We have a new team member. We do. We do. I mean, she has come at the most interesting time. <laughs> She's amazing. Her name is Genevieve. Mm-hmm. And she has risen up to the task of joining the team right during this moment. Yeah. And we cannot, we could not be more thrilled. It's, I'm so, so excited to be building content with her and making amazing shows with her. She is fantastic. Yep. She's done such an incredible job already. And yeah, welcome to the team, Genevieve. How exciting. Yeah. Virtual balloons. I'm yes. popping sparklers right now and, and waving. <laughs> if she if she if we were actually in a studio, I'd have bought her a coffee and some kind of pastry, but she yeah. isn't. So I will just send her a picture of one on Facebook. So we're gonna try uh throughout Tuesday breakfast to have a little bit of a chat about things, just a slight chat about things that have happened or things we've read or seen or watched or consumed. Um perhaps arts related because the arts is keeping us alive at the moment. Um, thank God. Uh, that is non COVID related and has put us in a good mood. And for me, um, it's all in the headline of this essay that I stumbled across on electric literature. It's called my butch lesbian mum, Bruce Springsteen. And I'm not sure if you all know, but I'm obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. I always have. He's the working class American uh, dream and he always has had this real butch lesbian aura my dream in life is just to have Bruce Springsteen's arms that's yeah. all I've ever wanted in life and the article says why should dads get to lay sole claim to the boss um I just adore it and I will uh link it in the show notes or do some or I'll somehow you'll somehow you will somehow hear more about this in the future no doubt <laughs> you'll you'll print it off like put it into paper planes and just like fly it out of your, your window. Absolutely. It, it seems appropriate then to finish off with a little bit of Bruce Springsteen to potentially get you out of bed this morning. Uh, thanks for listening and see you next week.
Stay hungry 